Heavenly Father, your word um, is uh, a testament to us about Jesus and the gospel. He's the light of the world, and he came into the world to save us. Lord, we pray that you would give us all of the strength and uh, help by the Holy Spirit that we could walk line by line, phrase by phrase, thinking over your word until it glows with glory and warmth and is food for our souls. In Christ's name, amen. Oh, y'all got some of my music. All right, so I turned all the stage lights off and I tried to blow it up a little bit to make it visible and seeable. Um, so what I'm gonna go ahead and do is I'm gonna go and start as if I were brand new doing a new passage. So I'm going to come down here and click this little plus and say that I want to do an arc. I'll select the NASB. And I'll scroll down to Romans 8. I'm going to tell it that I want to arc Romans 8, 18 through 25. If uh, you're seeing this for the first time, this is BibleArc.com. This is how it works. Um, and you'll notice that this is in the middle of the page. And that's because I've got brackets turned on, and I'll turn that off. All right. Um, how seeable is the text? Do I need to zoom in further? We're good? I've, okay, a little bit more. All right. I'll make it bigger. Is that better? It's better, but is it good enough? All right, cool. All right, so the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to break the passage down into individual propositions. Propositions, again, are verbal ideas that communicate an individual thought. We got really technical and detailed last time on how to do that. And so what I want to do is I just want you guys to call out to me where each of the breaks would be. How would you break it down? And then if what you suggest is any different than what I had, we'll stop and dialogue for a second. All right. So I'm going to read the passage, and then I'll stop and say, would you put a break anywhere in here and, to, and break it down into individual propositions? For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Any breaks in that passage that anyone would make? Good. I didn't do one either. Um, you'll see that we've got two verbs in here for I consider and are not. This is my personal preference, but whenever I'm looking at something like I consider, I know, I say, I leave those together because we're quoting a particular idea. It doesn't really benefit us at all to break it off. So I leave those together. I consider the, all right, good. Verse 19, for the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Any breaks? Okay, good. I didn't either. Next one. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Any breaks in here? 
And if so, what word would you break after? All right. So you're right in observing, or sitting there silently, that there's only one supplied verb. However, I would make several breaks in here because you see that there's logical pivots that are taking place that are continually pointing back to a single verb. So what's the verb in this sentence? Was subjected. So I'm going to show you where I would break. For the creation was subjected to futility. It was not subjected willingly. See how it kind of points back to the was subjected here? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And then I would even break this down here, because I think this in hope is, the, is part of the next sentence. Actually, I'll leave it together. All right, so you see how the not willingly and the because of him who subjected it are still kind of returning to the was subjective verb, and it's giving us different individual ideas. The creation was subjected to futility. It was not subjected willingly, but was subjected because of him who subjected it. All right, next sentence. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Any breaks that you'd supply in there? And if so, after what word? Okay, I left it together as well. But let's talk about why. So where's our verb? What's the verb in uh, verse 21 here? We'll be set free. Very good. So we'll be set free. And we've got a lot of other ideas that are going on in here. But uh, we'll be set free is the main verb, and the rest of these are different phrases of prepositional phrases and et cetera. And I think that they all deserve to stay together. All right, next sentence, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Any breaks in there that you would make? No, there's not. However, how many verbs are in there? There's two verbs. So why don't we break it? Why don't why do we say there's only one proposition when there's two verbs? All right, I'm going to teach you your million-dollar word of the day. You ready? These two verbs are what's called a hendiadis. Yep. Hendiadis. H-E-N-D-Y-D-A-S-I-S. It's the idea of two words communicating a single idea. So when we say um, nice and warm, are we saying that it's both nice and warm? Are we saying that those two together communicate one idea? That's a hendiadis. You'll get Jeopardy right someday. Um, and that's what's happening here with groans and suffers. It's just one idea. It's not, it's, it's not separate. Oops. And the same thing we said earlier, no is also a verb in here, but I'm choosing to leave it together because it, it doesn't have anything that would be beneficial to break off. All right, now let's go to the next one. And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, 
even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. Lots of weird turns, right? Like it's a very oddly structured sentence. So if I, I, there are breaks in here, who, uh, who wants to throw out where they would make their first one? What was that, Ben? Say it louder. Not only that. Okay. So you could. I'll tell you why I didn't. It's a great, no, it, it's, it's fair, and it is its own idea. The reason is because the sentence is so awkward and wonky that I want to keep it connected with uh, the, uh, another idea together so that it's easy to chart in a second. We'll see that. But more importantly, the and not only that, is really functioning as a conjunction to the previous phrase. It's not its own idea. So uh, let me show you a way that I did it. And not only that, is it, is it going crazy? All right, hold on, let me make sure this is nice and tight. All right, and not only that, but also we ourselves, break, having the first fruits of the Spirit, and then, oop, and not only that, but also we ourselves have, okay, sorry, boom, break there. And then after ourselves. There's really three ideas in this one sentence. Having the first fruit, groaning within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our bodies to be adopted. Those are the three ideas there. But what's weird is that all the different phrases junk it up. And so this is a very difficult one to break down. You kind of have to step back and think what is actually being supplied here? Because he's saying the same, like, even we ourselves, not only ourselves, but we also ourselves, it's very confusing. So you kind of have to step back, take a big picture view, and say, what are the, really the three ideas going on? All right, and then the last one, verse 24. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is not seen, or hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. All right, first break. Where is it? Yes. Good. After saved. Where's the next one? Good. And then, what's the, where, was, is there another breakdown here in 25? Yes, right there. If we hope, we wait. Those are the two ideas that are in there. All right. So I'm going to zoom out for just a second so we can see the whole thing. I know you can't read it all. But here's the whole thing. All right? Now, we talked about uh, sometimes when you're arcing something, it's helpful to take the lowest hanging fruit. The simplest ideas that are clearly interacting with each other and group those first. So, for example, when I start seeing not this but that, those are very simple ideas that are relating to one another. So let me blow this back up and I'll tell you where I started. Um, so, for example, I see down here 
Um, it wasn't subjected willingly, but was subjected because of him. Oh, but was because of, but was subjective because of him. It wasn't subjected willingly, but was subjected because of him. What relationship would that be? No, but close. Not an alternative. An alternative is two different paths. There's a negative positive. Very good. A negative positive. It's where you deny one thing as another way of saying something else. I don't hate that guy. I love that guy. Which is different than you could love him or hate him. Do you see the difference there? How when I'm saying I don't hate that guy, what I'm actually saying is I love that guy. I'm saying the same thing one way negatively and another way positively. And that's what's happening here. It was not subjected willingly, which is another way of saying it was subjective by him. So God subjected it. It didn't volunteer. God subjected it. So it didn't subject willingly, but instead was subjected by God. There's a one. Let's jump down here and look at some other low-hanging fruit. But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we wait for it eagerly, or wait eagerly for it. Now, when I see an if, that's typically a good indicator. Yes, Laura? Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. Thank you for asking that for the whole room. Better? All right. So if we hope, one more. Thank you, John. Yes? All right. <laughs> Half this lesson is just going to be deciding how far away you can still see it. Um, all right. So the first idea here is that we, if we hope, if we hope for what we don't see, we eagerly wait for it is the second half of that idea. How do those two relate to each other? What relationship describes the way that those two are relating to each other? And I'll give you a hint. The word if is a good indicator. Good. An if-then or a conditional statement. If we hope for what we don't see, then we are eagerly waiting for it. Very good. All right. Let's go up just a little bit. What about these two? But hope that is not seen, or hope that is seen, is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? How does that second phrase relate to the first phrase? I'll give you a hint. Look at the conjunction that begins it. What is the second? What did you say? There is a restatement. That's a, great, that's a great idea. And when you ever see four, you're basically going to almost always run into one of two relationships. Four sometimes is a restatement of an idea. Four sometimes is another way of saying because. So I'm going to try this out, 
and you tell me which one makes the most sense. But hope that is not seen, or hope that is seen is not hope. That is, who hopes for what he already sees? That's experiment number one. All right, experiment number two. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Which of those two made more sense to what's happening here? That is or because? Because, very good. And that's how I like to test those out, is I swap them. So what he's saying is, hope that is seen is not hope because you can't hope for something if you already see it. Those are categorically opposed to each other. Not possible. He's giving a reason why that if something's seen, it can't be called hope. All right. Now let's ask how these two relate. Hope that is seen is not hope, for who already hopes for what he sees? So on the one hand, he's saying, hope that is seen is not hope. Can we agree that that's the main idea in those first two? The second one's just supplying the reason for why it's true. But the main idea, and we'll talk about that next week, is that hope that's seen is not hope. That's the main idea. So hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait eagerly for it through perseverance. The way that these two relate to each other, I would say, is a negative positive. He's denying one thing, or stating it negatively, and then stating positively what is true. So, if you hope for, it can't, if it's seen, it doesn't count as hope. But we, on the other hand, hope for what we don't see. He's saying the same thing two different ways, once negatively, one positively. Negatively, he's saying we are not hoping for something we see. And then positively, he's saying we hope for what we do not see. Saying the same thing twice there, once negatively, one positively. The main idea being that we eagerly wait for something that we can't see. So now let's group all of these together. Right here, this big old chunk from 24B down is just one big statement that says, hey, we hope for what we do not see. We're waiting for something. That's the whole idea here. And we'll, again, next week talk about how you can see that more quickly. And then he says, for in hope we have been saved. How does for in hope we have been saved, relate to the idea that we're eagerly waiting for something. What's the idea that he's making there? Let me supply a word here. Therefore. We've been saved in hope. Therefore, we are eagerly waiting for something. You see how that kind of wraps everything up together and shows how all of those ideas are working together to create one idea, and then it relates to the one up above it. We have been saved in hope. Therefore, we are eagerly waiting for something. All right. Now let's go up a little bit. and Let's ask how these three weird ones relate to each other. 
We ourselves groan, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Whenever I see, does anybody know what this is called right here? Waiting eagerly? What, what part of speech that is? We learned about it a couple weeks ago. This is called a participle or a participial phrase. It's a way of using something that sounds like a verb to describe or tell a way in which something else is happening. Okay? Do you see how waiting eagerly is describing how we groan within ourselves? What does it look like to groan within ourselves? Well, one of the things that that includes is that we're waiting eagerly. That's why we're groaning, because we can't wait for that to happen. Right? So this is what's called an action and a manner. The action is that we're groaning within ourselves. And the manner is that that groaning, that, that, that longing for something, what, what does it look like? What, why is that happening? What's the manner in which that happens? Well, the manner in which that's happened, a, a feature of our groaning within ourselves is that we're waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. It's a manner in which that's happening. And now I'm going to ask, how do these two relate? How does groaning within ourselves, a feature of which is waiting for our adoption, how does that relate to we have the first fruits of the Spirit? I'm going quickly to try to make sense of the fact we only have five more minutes. Um, this is a, uh, what's called an inference. What that means is listen to, listen to me reword this. Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, therefore we groan within ourselves. I supplied a therefore, and I think that really captures what he's saying here. We have, because we have the first fruits, the, the, having the first fruits of the Spirit is explaining why we are groaning. He's reminding them why it is that you're experiencing this. Because you have the first fruits of the new age to come. This groaning should be an encouragement. All right. And then I'm going to group all these together. And I'm going to ask, how does being saved in hope relate to having the first fruits of the Spirit? and all the groaning that happens. We have the first fruits of the Spirit leading to groaning, so we're groaning, and we've been saved in hope. These are related to, one of them is the reason for the other. Why is it that we're groaning? Why is it that we're uncomfortable? Why is it that we long for something to come? Because we've been saved in hope. And hope that you can see is not hope at all. Do you see how this logic starts to fall together? So, the main idea here is that we're groaning within ourselves because we were saved in hope, not in something that we can already see. All right, I'm going to quickly piece together some of these other ones. How does this one relate to here? Subje uh, creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, we've already seen this relationship once before. 
What's happening in 20b and 20c is explaining the manner in which it was subjected. It's saying it was subjected to futility. How was it subjected? Or in what way was it subjected? Not willingly, but by God. And then he tells us why. Oops. Why was it? So that the creation would be set free. This is an action subjecting creation to futility. The reason that he did it, the purpose, is so that creation would be set free. Now, let's return to Ben's question earlier. I see a four here. Is this a statement that gives me more information or re-explains the idea? Or is this giving me a reason for why the idea is true? So, the idea that creation was subjected to futility so that it would be set free, is that because the whole creation groans? Or is that another way of saying the whole creation groans? It's the second one. He's not giving you a reason why. He's not saying all of creation groans because it suffers childbirth pains. No. All of creation groans, which is another way of saying it suffers childbirth pains. Now, I'm going to zoom out really, really tiny and just ask you to remember the passage. I know you can't read it. But when I'm marking this for the first time, I'm seeing something. Verses 19 through 22 is all about one subject. And verses 23 through 25 is all about one subject. The subject of verses 20 through 22 is what? Creation. The subject of verses 23 through 25 is all about what? Our groaning. So I'm going to go ahead and group these together and ask, how do they wait? For the eagerly awaiting creation, or for the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And then why is it waiting? Because God subjected it to futility. All right. Now, I'm going to figure out how all of these group together. And we already talked about this. We said, look, one of these is telling us about how creation groans. The other one is telling us how we groan. We feel that too. And so I would actually call this a series, or I would even say a progression. You have two ideas that all together are collectively presenting something. And I would say that the actual us groaningness is a crescendo of the overall argument. So if I were to step back in a really big picture, what I would say is, the current sufferings are not worthy to be compared of the glory to come. Why? Because creation groans, and we groan as a way of pointing to what's coming. Now, now why is this important? So this is a ground. Why is this important? You'll think back to our previous passage. What did he say right before this? Can you all see this? Over here on Romans 8 on the side. The Spirit testifies himself with our spirit 
that we are the children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. And so he says, you must suffer with him. You must suffer with him. So what's the motivation to suffer with him? Because the current sufferings cannot compare to the glory that's coming. You want to see what that looks like? You want to see a little hint that that's coming? Look at creation. All of it suffers right now in childbirth. And look at you. Look at what's going on in you. You suffer as you war against that old man that's within you. You experience not only the persecution from within, but the persecution from without. And those two things together are just a promise that you are the beginning of the new thing that's coming, the glory of which is not worthy to be compared of any suffering that you go through in this life. That's the argument that he's making. And you can see that that's graphically displayed here. Now, I know that was really tough, and especially because you've been on like a two-week break, three-week break, whatever. And we had to move really quickly. Um, Here's what we're going to do next week, and honestly, it's my favorite lesson of all that we're doing all week. Next week, we're going to talk about how do you identify the main point of a passage? The main point. This is very important for preachers, Sunday school teachers, fathers leading family worship, moms homeschooling their kids. You want to make sure that when God has an idea and then surrounds it with a bunch of supporting things, that we don't become distracted by the shiny stuff that's only supporting a different idea. God's main point, our main point, must be the same, otherwise we're saying something different. All right? And so we want to talk about how does this method help us to see what the main point is and what is supporting it. All right. So that's what we'll do next week. I'll pray, and then uh, you guys will be dismissed. Father, one of the um, groans is the groan of time, uh, trying to make the best of it. So, Lord, I, I pray that, um, that you would multiply uh, the loaves and fish of this lesson. I also pray, Lord, um, that you would help Grace Church to fall in love with asking, whether it's this method or anything else, to fall in love with asking, what do you say? That you'd bury deep within their souls a conviction that nothing in the vanity fair of life can compare with what you promise to give them in your word. Please. In Christ's name, amen.